0: This is the Nomad Futurist podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmoud from Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host Phil Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. This is uh, Randy
1: Boron from Toronto. And this, this is Mike Michael Boron from Toronto.
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. So this is the father-son duo. We've been getting more and more requests for that lately on the channel. So Randy, let's start with you. What do you do?
2: We help companies become efficient in their business processes mm-hmm. and strategies as it relates to data centers. With Cushman and Wakefield, the root to organization or real estate, very early on in my career, uh, focused on the data center industry, which has changed enormously through my career. And uh, we provide a wide variety of services uh, within the organization. Michael and I sit within the brokerage part of the company. So we are busy uh, developing strategies to acquire sell data centers, lease co-location facilities around the world, and uh, negotiate built to seem contracts as well. So working for hyperscalers, working for
0: co-location companies. And enterprise. So there's a lot of questions that are going to come out of this. Your career path is quite interesting. I think this is the only and one job that you have had.
2: Yeah, one job, one company I got hired right out of university and been there ever since, despite my commitment to never stay with a company for more than five years.
3: How'd that work out for you?
2: It, it didn't work out at all. When I made that commitment, I was bet on a lot of continuous learning and I was able to do that to my heart's content uh, where it was, so so kept me there.
0: So you've got a degree in urban development. Cushman uh, and Wakefield make a lot of sense, getting out of college, getting into that position. Now, how did you transition into the data center business? 40 years ago, not that I'm trying to age you, but we're all old over here, and that's okay, I guess. But 40 years ago, nobody was talking about data centers of this even being a sector. How did you end up choosing technology and technology at a point in time when it was even being defined. There was no talks of data centers. We were still in the IBM mainframe era back then, massive computers taking closets in the day. Uh, How did you end up choosing this as a sector to focus that early on in your career?
2: It's an interesting story. It certainly shows real estate specifically, which is an unusual thing in itself, in most people that I talk to. I got into real estate by mistake. Quite frankly, when I was in grade 10, that's the path I wanted to go. And I focused my education on real estate and urban development. I was also fascinated with technology and I did study computer science at university in my first year. Uh, But I was hired right out of school to run the research department of our company uh, in the office leasing division. I fairly quickly got my broker's license, became a broker. And I had the opportunity uh, very early on to uh, work with a company out of Denver who wanted to lease space in the carrier hotel and got to work with some terrific engineers, uh, learned a lot about what they were doing, what the function was of, of all the equipment, how the infrastructure worked, how uh, do we have to negotiate in a lease document to allow them to do what they needed to do with that infrastructure. And that was my first transaction and that just led to Another one, another one. And so a lot of the early on leasing I was doing was in the carrier hotel. And then shortly thereafter, the telecom industry started deregulating and and booming. And so we were leasing telecoms, which is, which essentially are data centers. And we were doing that from coast to coast and growing with that business. And then it evolved to enterprise major enterprise data center, built a suit and site selection and leasing to then co to then hyperscale. So it's been a wild
3: ride. The fact that you chose real estate at such an early time, what led even to that dis- decision? Were, were your parents in real estate? Were you fascinated by leases as a child? Yeah, just, I think real estate development was the, my passion at the time. So
2: I, know, I had a keen interest in it. Loved the sort of from design to finance side of it, learned more and more. But when I graduated, I really didn't know much about what Real estate brokers did, and it wasn't part of our career kingdom. So it was was another quick learning path from there. And Did you grow up in a city? I grew up in Toronto, and I went to school, University of Western Ontario in London, just west of Toronto.
3: So you've always been in kind of an urban environment. Yes. And then I have to imagine the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Is that what led to you, Michael, entering uh, similarly to your dad, the real estate field, or was it by accident? (laughs) We'll call it the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but accidentally. I actually didn't
1: mean to stay. When I first started out of university, I was like as a summer student looking for summer internships. And I started applying to a bunch. Had Randy look at my resume and he said, I could use some help at the office. It'd be some good experience for you. And that was also my like, first entrance into the data center world as well was helping, helping on the research side. So the data center practice. Real estate, I never thought I was going to go into that. I did finance, uh, BBA at Wilfrid-Laurier. So I was kind of need something on the business side, maybe something in finance. But real estate wasn't on the radar until I took that internship.
3: And I think the data center piece is what kept becoming that. Do you, do you have any brothers and sisters? Hello, brother. little brother. Is this going to be another future pushman? Oh, he's a
1: past pushman. Yeah. Oh, my God. So he came in and he was working on the team for a while. He got set up with one of us. I'm not sure which.
0: Is he still invited to Thanksgiving? Yeah. It's either either one the Canadian or the American. All right. So were you exposed to data centers and technology and what was dad doing as you were growing up and uh, you're figuring out uh, your career path? A little bit. I know he told me a bit
1: about it in high school, but I didn't really listen. But it was... Stop stop (laughs) talking to me about all that boring stuff at the time you don't think it's important until like he's talking digital infrastructure and at the time I was just thinking about how does this relate to how quick my xbox is and that was about that but then once you start getting into it like deeper and deeper you kind of realize that everything that we're doing right now there's a physical footprint there's an infrastructure that goes along with it in the background it doesn't just we aren't just magically speaking together right now and that perspective I think really got me interested in this space it drove a lot of projects and work that I actually did in business school as, as far as case studies were concerned.
0: So if it wasn't a... for the Xbox and dad yeah. tried to explain how the Xbox works or the network, you would not be a part of this industry, would you?
1: Oh, no. He needed to use Halo to get me interested. <laughs> <laughs> I it's
3: guess it's it worked for you, not
0: for your brother. It worked for a
3: little while. Do we have like a surprise guest? We should have a surprise guest so we can figure out which one of them we got fed (laughs) up with. I can tell Randy knows the answer. He's not going to say yet. We should have had this one after hours, after a couple of drinks, maybe we get the, the, the actual answer. It's an interesting dichotomy when you're getting into the data center space, like early on when it was just coming into its own, it was like the wild, wild west. You felt like a pioneer and it was just like, it wasn't mysterious because everyone was learning at the same time. So I think, Randy, for you, I imagine it was less difficult to kind of explain because like, the internet came into being during your professional career. So you still could understand the life before digital times and now. And for you, Michael, when you were growing up, the internet just worked. So there was no reason for you to get exposed to that. It's not something that they taught you in primary school or middle school or high school or anything. You maybe learned technology broadly. I guess this question is to Randy. How much of Just the fact that you were there when it all started, do you think led to you getting involved in it? Because you were kind of the young buck at the time that was willing to blaze that path and even respond to these weird telecom folks that that were looking for space, rather than having to feel intimidated by the technology overall.
2: Yeah, it was all new. None of my colleagues had anything to do with it. They didn't understand it. As it turned out, I I wasn't alone. There were major cities throughout North America and the world. There were other people that were similarly following the path as I was and doing their first data center deal 35 years ago, and, and then becoming experts. And, and, and that's sort of the basis of the group that makes up our global data center advisory group, with people have been doing it for a long time. They got into it, doing one deal led to another, another, and we grew up cutting our teeth on the industry, and it was so different when I started compared to what it is today. Everything about it was was different. So the pace of change and the learning has just been very exciting throughout the journey.
0: Was this even on the radar for Cushman and Wakefield that early on in your career? And how did you sell that internally for a market that's not even recognized as a market to become a significant part of your portfolio?
2: It wasn't on the radar screen, no. I don't think anyone's consciously sourced anyone's jump in, it was too early on. It's still considered a relatively new asset class. Back then it was sort of an anomaly, probably more than anything else. But my colleagues who were doing the same types of work in our regions around the world, we were making top dollar. So our production was excellent and they supported us and let us do our thing. And and we came together as
3: an international group and uh, it's turned out very well. I guess it's easy to justify internally when they're making all that money. You don't have to spend a lot of time convincing anyone. Oh, yes, keep doing that. Whenever it is you're talking
0: about wires, yes, yes, wires. Keep doing that. So, Michael, going back to you, how much of a direction did you get from your dad to pick up a major going to school? I think quite a bit. I wasn't really sure the direction I wanted to go. When I was
1: picking schools, I got into Western for psychology. I was always interested in that, was looking at applying for engineering or math degrees, but kind of talked with Randy and his suggestion was, are not sure what you want to do now, but there's element of business, in every, almost every industry. So it was a great way to kind of keep my eyes and, and doors open for what opportunities might be out there. And yeah, it's worked out so far it, the apple fell pretty close to their tree. So I've taken
0: a,
3: a little bit more
0: <laughs> advice from Randy over the years. Was um, there anything else on the radar? Like besides... Being a part of this sector. So I want to
3: join was, a rock band, dad. You a <laughs> yeah. rock band? Yeah, there
1: you go. I kept coming back every summer as a summer student to intern here. And it was a pretty easy choice to just continue working with Randy, continue working on the team. Like what was being built, and like the data center practice was really starting to grow. Take off even more than before <laughs> with the growth of the industry. And that's, I was happy to be a part of it and continue yeah. to help out. I'm not the longest serving member on your team yet,
0: but uh, I'm close. If you count childhood, you've been on Randy's team for a long time. That's true. Uh, So, Michael, how has it been working for your dad? It's been great. I
1: can't say that it's it's always been easy,
0: right? But I don't think it
1: it ever is when you're working with your father. Both have known each other my entire life.
3: There's an entire era of his life you don't know. No, and it's interesting. Every once in a
1: while, an old colleague of business will stop by and just say, like, did Randy ever tell you this story about the good old days at Cushman?
3: Good old days.
1: <laughs> and you hear some of these stories or you walk through a building, like Randy was in 20 years ago. And since all oh, this used to be there, comes up with some other story that it's probably inappropriate to tell on this podcast. <laughs> no such thing. No such thing.
3: There's always invite a- that person. Let's invite that person out the podcast right now. I want to know what <laughs> the old Randy was like. What are those awards behind you, Randy?
2: One of them is the Cushman Wake go all the same. So that's a pretty unique uh, group. But the next one over is the Award of Excellence. Again, that's a fairly unique award within the company. And then the other shoe, or I don't know.
3: I think one of those uh-huh. is an Emmy. I think you got an Emmy.
2: <laughs> National Top Producer Awards. I used to have a ton of them and I threw them all out. This is my office at home. My office at work has nothing there. Just a laptop is where I could work. And I've got all of in Florida. I do a lot of work there and I travel a lot. So I wanted to be paperless, and I didn't want to be tied down to an office anywhere. So we did that years ago and we became, I guess, because the, the people we work with are all around the world and we've been to travel a lot and we're dealing with real estate data centers all around the world. So it was really made a lot of sense for us to really embrace the digital transformation far faster than anyone else with COVID. It was like, yeah, okay. We've been doing this for years it's not a big deal for us, but we saw others scrambling and it was sort of interesting to see them try and catch up.
3: I have to imagine that you guys are in a unique place where I think you, you have a keen insight into how the various economies are working. Uh, as Cushman, because you know what's happening in the industrial space, what's happening in the data center sector, what's happening in commercial and residential real estate. right now, there's obviously a huge pending catastrophe with commercial real estate as a consequence of a lot of digital transformation and the pandemic and people talking about what is the office space of the future as you have all of these buildings that are being foreclosed on. How does that insight help? Obviously, from the data center side, obviously you chose right, right? Because there are only a couple of recession-proof industries. And it seems like the data center is wonderful market. i not going to go into the other ones because it's a family show, but how, how does having that insight and having that kind of interaction with the other teams within, within Cushman kind of help in terms of your visibility into how economies work and, and your perception of more broad markets, more broadly? Well, the
2: first thing I would say is that being in real estate, as many years as I have been, the one thing that's very obvious is it's cyclical. And I've gone through many of these cycles that go from great economies, one minute to just terrible recession, the next that often lasts for years. So this is not first rodeo and things change. They continue to change and when things look as bleakest as usually when they start to recover, so you're going to keep a keen eye open for changes in, in what's going on in the economy and the cycle. So you're right, things have changed a lot. We have a great research group and they're always trying to, you know, predict you know, recovery and predict the future state, but a challenge for them right now is so many of these changes are not cyclical of a typical nature. These are structural changes in, in many ways that we're seeing right now. Certainly on the data center side, what i are seeing is a structural change. It's not just a, a little trend that's going on here. What we're seeing on the office side is a structural change and people not going back and not needing as much office space anymore. And on the industrial logistics side, it's, it's a structural change as well. That market has has been exploding. And so to get to your point about being within Cushman Wakefield and how does that work and how does it work with us, it's been a tremendous advantage because we've got colleagues in regions around the world, we've got some of the largest companies in the world that they're managing their office space. And guess what? They have data centers and they need somebody to help develop a strategy to acquire a new data center, dispose of a new data center colleagues that focus on the land business, guess what? We're buying huge acreages next to huge amounts of power in, in regions for the hyperscale and co-location industry to expand. So great synergies there. Just the, the uh, disposition of data center assets that are leased, we're partnering with our capital markets teams to, to do that. So it works really well. And we, we do an awful lot of enterprise business in addition to colo and hyperscale because of our connections within Christian Show.
0: With the economic uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen, particularly with election year right around the corner as well, what are you guys forecasting as it entails to the IT sector in general? Are we getting ready for a downturn? Are we going to see uh, a relative stable environment over the next year or two? Or are we looking at a significant spike?
2: I'm very optimistic and I don't, think I'm alone in that opinion. There's a lot of positive signals, what we're seeing out there, that, it, that are going to show continued growth. At the same time, we're always asking, what are the disruptors? What is going to break this cycle of, of the tremendous growth? I think the investors are always asking us that question of, what do we see changing that's going to disrupt things? We're seeing a lot of changes happen, but they're driving more growth and more applications into the data center. I mean, AI, sort of the latest flavor of, of what's really driving things of, that has some unique dynamics from uh, the density uh, requirements, the so water cooling requirements, and the locations. So they, they don't have the same AZ type uh, requirements for locating within the major cities, so it's, what, what is it doing? that kind of change is disrupting the industry in a big way. The scale is getting rapidly much bigger. So small data centers, we're going to see go by the wayside pretty quickly, low density data centers. Ones that don't have a good sustainability story or metrics are going to go by the wayside. So it's accelerating uh, obsolescence uh, within the stock of data centers that we have right now in every major city. And, and if you look at data centers as a asset class, you kind of to look at them look how many do we have? How big are they? You start segmenting it by age or where are they? Almost all the data centers used to be in office buildings, right? Which was a little like jamming a square peg in a round hole. The, the uses didn't go together very well, and where to put the fuel, Already put the generators, how so much riser space is there. It was always a very awkward build and very expensive, inefficient, risky build. But at the time, that's what we did. And now it's the, the business has grown so much that these applications are very, very large, very industrial in nature, and, and we don't put them in office. Google is very for that anymore unless there's a real good reason
3: that's the thing. It's always been difficult to find that nuance. People look at the data center industry as one one type of deployment, when in reality, there are probably four or five or six or 10 different types of deployments for these types of opportunities. So yes, obviously, if you're doing a large-scale AI workload, you're going to need to focus on areas where maybe connectivity isn't the most important thing. Obviously, cost of power and availability of power and acreage um, uh, for the supporting infrastructure is probably more important. But if you're looking for a deployment that is more focused on connectivity, you have to kind of go to where that connectivity exists, which tends to be more in those urban centers, which just by virtue of logistics will probably end up being in some type of commercial real estate building and trying to understand those nuances and educate, not necessarily the consumer, people know what they need uh, when, they're, when they're looking for this space. But I think making sure people are more like understand the nuance and the different applications of what the use cases are will help them recognize whether if they're sitting on an asset that they don't know what uh, a purpose for. If you're in a building in Manhattan, you probably shouldn't look to AI as your saving grace. It's probably not the right use case. That's not to say there's not a telecommunication or communications or data center or edge type of pop. That may very well be a, an acceptable purpose for your site. I'm not sure there was a question in there. I just thought I would go on. That's
0: up. Phil rambling. Michael, so right. what are you seeing, <laughs> what are you seeing as far as the industry trends are concerned from your perspective? Let's put technology aside for a minute. So two questions. One is with these enterprise play consolidating, moving into more of a centralized environment like all holds or cloud for that matter. Are there certain areas that you're seeing a significant investment go in and secondly, What are you seeing outside the primary markets like the Americas? What areas are the ones that are on your guys' radars?
1: Yeah. So if we're looking at commercial real estate, the biggest trend is if you have office assets that are not performing, what do you do with them? Is there a way to lease them? Can you put enough money in them to make tenants want to come back? Or are you able to look at residential conversions or what other uses might be possible? We know a lot of owners right now are looking at lab uses we get calls all the time with groups asking us if this office building or, or another office building could be a data center 90 percent of the time it probably doesn't have the right characteristics uh to make that conversion but we're always willing to have those conversations for for data centers uh, i would say the, the trend is just going to work growth and where most of the requirements that we're seeing come to us now are they want hundred megawatts minimum. They want large pieces of land outside of the city with as much power and as much fiber activity as possible. And sometimes that's kind of tough to put together depending on the market. There's a lot of demand from the 3PLs, from industrial users that are competing with that same amount of space. So it's driving up markets in, uh, or prices in a lot of those core market. And then for markets where we're seeing a lot of demand, there's growth globally. When it comes to the data center industry, Europe is having its own troubles, filling requirements, partly because of the energy shortages and energy crises that they have ongoing, but there's a lot of demand for to get into Europe and acquire and build more space there. Asia and South America are also having a lot of additional interest these days. Our, our data center group in, in South America has been very busy trying to find locations for hyperscalers these days. And we've worked very closely with our colleagues in, in EMEA, because it's a lot of Canadian, American companies that are going over there.
3: And it's a lot of
1: uh, European companies that are trying to land on North American shores as well.
3: Is that a new trend, uh, Randy? Is that something that you saw in the early stages of growth also? Or have you seen the old adage of a small world after all from Disney World? Are you seeing a lot more growth in other markets than you had, let's say, 15, 20 years ago?
2: Yeah, it's such a capital intensive business that you got to remember 20, 30 years ago, these these companies, even the ones that are very big now, they they were struggling to get the cash to build the infrastructure that they needed. So they, they had to be selective, right? And they had to um, be strategic about the markets they were picking and the scale that they were building and, and figure out how do I build something and and preserve my capital and my design and my build and my land acquisition. And then what markets there do I go into and then once an establishment, a, a North American company, they're hitting the sort of key tier one markets in North America, and then suddenly they get to a certain size and a the scale, they get another significant round of financing, and they say well, we can go global now. So now there's a whole other set of cities to go to, and there's only so much time, so much money. So that strategy of where do you go has is, is always been limited by the amount of capital. And it continues to be, now. You know, money still flows pretty readily in the data center world, but the cost has gone up dramatically in the last 18 months. So it's having an impact. But I think if you look to see, we had an absolute record of leasing in the industry last year. It was just off the charts how successful it was. It was a bit of a run in the market. that's left us with very low vacancies and the companies that deliver data centers are having trouble getting to those new markets now because They've got to deliver what they've leased, and you know, it's that's billions of dollars of new construction. So it's interesting to see, and I, I think to answer your question, Phil, these companies, they're going to be everywhere at some point, at some scale. It, it's just a matter of enough time and money and resources to, to get there. And certain sites are more strategic than others from time to time, but really what's driving it is more than anything else right now is delivery time. Where can you get the land? Where can you get the power? Where can you get entitlements? So solving for that is one of our biggest challenges. And then just back to your other point on the other real estate disciplines I and mean, we're a relatively small asset class, but we're competing with industrial. We're competing with logistics. Everyone else who needs land to do something else, we're, we're competing with them. So partially a matter of who's a friendly municipality. Where can I get that land? Where can I get the power? Where can I get the commitment so that I'm up and running quickly?
0: Would you say that that's actually also one of the reasons why we're looking at Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Latin American markets? Oh,
2: well, yeah, we're looking at them because they're underbuilt from a data center perspective. Huge populations, say a big economies that have been underinvested, and it's time to catch up to those yeah. markets. So, one of the strategies in serving markets yeah. in data centers sometimes is how can they be close to meet the latency profile? But get the energy or get the friendly uh, government environment or get away from the risks in in that market. Do you see that deployed all over the world, all all through the United States? And people sometimes scratch your head and go, why is that a data center market? Sometimes the answer is because it's not California, but it's close to California. So there's all all kinds of different strategies, but those markets, their age is coming, their time is coming and we're staying big investment now because of that
3: michael as someone that recently kind of entered this world has it from listening to the way you're talking about it i think people think of real estate brokers and as more contracts focused and just kind of putting a deal together and like looking at a database and finding an available thing and just facilitating right but you hear so much more kind of depth from a technology standpoint from an understanding your latency profiles that's not what i think you would have envisioned as a real estate broker being focused on. Has any of that surprised you either in a positive or a negative way in terms of the kind of depth that you have to go into to kind of understand the way these sites and these deals are put together? It definitely surprised me. It's it's
1: a steep learning curve to go from thinking about just square feet to thinking about power and kilowatts and understanding that these facilities are not filled with people right? They do not have the same concerns when, if you're working on an office deal, like people care about the view, people care about where can they get a coffee and those incidentals. With data centers, none of those are concerned. They have their own list uh, of needs and requirements, latency being one of them. Uh, Can you get the power? But I think Randy kind of got into it a bit, but where we produce, I think the most value is kind of finding those needles in a haystack. Is a term that Randy likes to use all the time. For site selection, right? It's about threading the needle and finding a site that it, it not just has the characteristics, but it's the timing. And a lot of the time, most of the options that we bring to the table, all of them might not line up. And it makes it a little bit more of an art than a science. Getting out into the into the market, pounding the payment, and making sure that you turn over every single stone so that your client gets all the information that they need, and we're able to uncover an off-market solution that nobody else wants because we understand the fundamentals of what a data center needs, whether it's the power or the latency. We're working with distributors and multiple power distributors in multiple markets, understanding where they're investing so that we can get our client to the areas where this power is getting delivered before anybody else, right? So it's about building those strategies, building that knowledge base. And yeah, we still have our databases and we're able to pull those up and show our clients what we have. but. It's a much different process than just office space and not nearly as many people are doing it, All right? So I have Randy as a mentor and there's a few others in the group, but it's definitely its own niche within the industry. It's
2: kind of a unique field for us in the way that like, do. There's just not many people that know real estate well and IT and mission critical infrastructure It's kind of a unique group of. Skill sets, I think. And do we always want to know as much as we do about IT. No, but I, I think the answer that we kind of have to, we get brought into the room and we're, we're working on very, very important projects for corporations that we work with. So They're there C level, board level decisions. If we get something wrong, there's, there's heads will roll. So this is the, the life and blood of these organizations. And so very high level, high visibility. And as a result of that, we've got. All these different stakeholders at the table with us, from finance to procurement to IT, real estate, and everybody's got a stake in the race. So, and everybody's having a real close look at our shoulder, and we're sort of the ones that are quarterbacking, bringing everyone together for a business case that works that everybody can agree to and spend the kind of money we're asking for all at the same time. It's uh, not
0: easy chore. I think that's what makes this industry very exciting and sexy. It's kind of interesting. Who gets the most exposure when it comes down to data centers or the technology? It's the technologists. It's the ones that are throwing out the application stack all day long, right? Make TikTok great. Who would have thought? But what you guys are doing are the basis of the entire data infrastructure industry and having that understanding of why people are doing what they're doing, what technology trends and how do you actually blend your play, which is really the real estate play into the entire mix, whereby it's creating value to the end users and the shareholders. Randy, how is it having Michael work for you? It's interesting.
2: I, I take it a little bit for granted because we've been doing it a long time and we work well together, but I tell you, people come up to me and they think it's the strangest thing. And if people come up, I get two of a reaction, one would be I can't believe you're working with your son. I could never do that. I would never want him around me in my work environment. So some people would, they would never do it. And others who will say, that is the coolest thing. I would love to be able to work with my children. I'd love to find out a way to make that work. So for me, it's always been a a pleasurable uh, environment. Michael is such a a wonderful, gentleman, young man. He's very scaric. He, he's the sort of like first generation that grew up everything digital. And I don't know if you've heard Julie Albright speak about children and iPads and she's fascinating stories. Digital, about children.
0: digital native.
2: Yeah. So that, that's Michael's work. He grew up in it. And because of that, I learned very early on that he thinks completely differently than I do. And so I wouldn't be able to come up with, here's what I think the end result needs to be. But I learned very early on, I don't even dare try to tell him how to do it because I'll tell him one way and that'll turn out to be the slow, awkward way. And Michael will come up with an idea that I never even thought of, that I didn't even know existed, where he'll have a hundred times production done in a fraction of the time. And I didn't even think about it. Like, I didn't even know how he came up with it. And so that's exciting for me to learn, but I didn't let him go.
0: A part of being the parent and having that confidence in your kids and believing in their strengths and encouraging them to come up with creative ideas and leveraging their exposure and experiences that they have had to streamline and build on what you know, right? It's extremely valuable because we kind of get stuck in our ways as we get older. It's not necessarily the ego, it's the comfort zone. This is what we know, this is what we have been doing for the last four or five decades of being in this sector. And this is the easiest and quickest way, yet we've got to be open to the next generation passing the baton on to them. So kudos to you, Randy. I think that's a great secret and something that uh, we need to practice more often in our industry to encourage the younger generation to come into this place. Yeah. Well, one of the I, big
2: things we're debating these days is that with the new AI chips, high-powered chips that we stack them up, we're getting to 80, kW to a rack now. And- Bringing water cooling and figure out how's the infrastructure going to get to those densities. Well, I, I think Michael looks at us and laughs and he goes, "When I was in high school, I built a chip cooled computer himself, and he, so he's he sort of figured it out ten years ago, and we're all talking about it now."
3: He was immersion cooling when he was ten years old. <laughs> Liquid cooling, not uh, immersion. Yeah. Given the fact that you guys work together so closely, do you find it difficult to separate the kind of professional relationship from the personal relationship? Like in order to have personal time, you don't want to have family time as much because you spend so much time together already that maybe you won't vacation together. I'm not suggesting you would have vacation together anyway. You live in the same place and maybe it's not necessary. You're also adult. But um, do you find it difficult to separate the professional from the personal? No, I don't know why, but
2: we don't. We get together a lot. We spend a lot of time together as a family as a whole. Like Sunday barbecues around our place is sort of the norm where we have not only immediate family, but. Parents, grandparents, friends, and cousins, and we have a big crew every Sunday and we don't talk shop, but there's there's plenty of time we do talk about business, but when we're on personal time, we separate
3: it. It's a balance, right? But I think there's just something so interesting about having a perspective where you understand each other's lives so well that typically in life, you need to have a a group around you that, that kind of understand what you're going through. And it sounds like you guys, you know, you have that with each other, which is incredibly valuable and, and unique.
2: Yeah. Michael's very passionate about the business. He's always trying to solve problems and whether we're acquiring a site for a cloud company or solving a sustainability problem through heat exchange technology or reusable heat. He's, he's always working on those kinds of things and he works very hard at them and his, you know, the clients he has and loves him for it, but I always got to pressure him to try and take more vacation time because he works too Get hard.
0: Get on that Michael right now before it gets way too complicated and overburden. All right. So we're <laughs> kind of coming to a tail end and I've got a question for the two of you. Nuclear, is that practical or a pipe dream? And how is that affecting the data center play going forward? If you just look at it energy requirements that well, North America and Europe currently
1: require, it'll be hard to service it with just solar and wind And nuclear is always kind of this, this solution that's there that can produce a lot of power. And I think one of the other questions is like SMRs or larger nuclear facilities, right? And you saw how much power generation was being constructed in China a few years back when they were still building out their manufacturing industry as Beyond data centers, I mean, manufacturing in a lot of ways is coming back to like North American market, that growth chip manufacturing, we're, we're seeing EV plants in Ontario that are taking 800 megawatts on their own, right? And that's an entire SMR rate there. So I, I think like nuclear is probably the most efficient way that we can still that gap. Yeah, it's a little bit more expensive, but the acreage that's required for solar, solar is a great solution, but there's some challenges and implementing it at the scale that we need right now. So I see nuclear as a must for not just the data center industry, but I think just our economies to continue to meet the power demands that we have.
2: I'd love it to be a a big scalable solution for us. It's, It's clean, it's proven, it's a sustainable solution. And the amount of generation that is going to be required is just going to be absolutely off the charts. I don't see the utilities. They they certainly have failed in planning in regions around the world. And I don't fully appreciate why they all seem to have failed so badly, but somebody can maybe explain it to me one day, but uh, it's not getting any better, right? And I don't see an immediate solution for it getting better. It's only going to get worse. And uh, what my fear is, is all of these wonderful sustainability targets that we put in place are going to have to fall by the wayside if we don't solve the generation problem. And so that's a huge negative consequence that uh, we're faced with. And the other thing is a big part of what we do is I try to identify risks in every way, whether it's contract risk, whether it's supplier risk, environmental risks. So that's what we do, bread and butter, all day long. There, there are some new risks related to the the energy grids and supplies out there that are, are new to us in the industry, whereby, like, if you're a big data center provider, you're trying to be a good neighbor, but your well, community is brown. you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn your generators on or are you going to shut down? Surprisingly, we've seen a few last summer it started. We saw, saw a few in Europe in California where data centers shut down. They didn't go on generators, and shut down. And but to me, that's a scary thought that uh, we need to start thinking about.
0: Indeed, Michael. Growing up as a child, and especially under the radar and influence of Randy, and and being successful, I, mean, I think you're doing great, and you've got a great career path ahead of you. What are some of the key takeaways that you would tell your younger brother and or others that are thinking about data infrastructure as potentially a sector to join? I think the number one takeaway is work ethic.
1: Number one thing, Randy. Taught me as a kid growing up was it doesn't matter what you do, but you got to work hard for whatever it is you do. And he was a shining example of that. I remember like he would come to almost every one of my hockey games when I was growing up, no matter how busy it was. He would just sometimes he would still be watching, but he'd be on the phone sometimes. Right. And kind of seeing that and getting to experience that firsthand, I took that as a lesson. And again, like I didn't know I wanted to get into this industry. My background was more finance and business, but work ethic, working hard, learning on the job, trials by fire occasionally, right? But through hard work, you can solve a lot of problems.
0: Randy, the same question to you. Of course, you have seen your son rise and shine. You've had a great career. Uh, What would you tell the younger generation to potentially explore information technology and data infrastructure as a sector of choice and a career path? There's some
2: wonderful benefits to it. It's a really, a relatively tight community. We interact with people around the world. We, we follow them from job to job as their careers grow. And so we've got a lot of friends in the business and in the industry. Uh, I love the fact that it's tight. I love the fact that it, it's changing so quickly and we're being forced to adapt, forced to learn all the time, which to me is very exciting. It's very recession-proof. There's a lot of investors who want to put capital into the industry because of the growth rates and the stability of it, and very sticky types of tenants, right? There, this is the mission critical heart and soul of the organizations. that don't just pick up and move. And as a matter of fact, when the economy gets rough and the employees go home, the companies do is they double down on digital transformation. They increase their spending, and we're seeing the benefits of that now.
0: It's kind of interesting. I've always thought about two industries being recession proof: food and alcohol. <laughs> it's not bad to be the third one in the space, considering what is happening around the world. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Michael, uh, the best of luck in your career and advancements. I'm sure you're going to do well. And Randy, thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's been great. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And it we'll sounds see like we'll you guys. see you
3: guys in, in Toronto, yeah?
0: Yes. Yeah, we'll see you there.
3: Amazing. Wonderful.
0: This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing as well as your continued support.